0: Hey everybody, before we get started today, we want to make sure everyone knows about our upcoming live shows. First up, Holly will be at Salt Lake Comic Con September 21st through 23rd. I won't be able to make it to that one, so past guest and friend of the show, Brian Young, will be talking with her about Lon Chaney. Then, on October 6th at 9.30 p.m., we will be appearing as part of New York Comic Con Presents and we'll be talking about the first comic book. You can find out more information on all of this, ticket links, everything like that, if you go to mistinhistory.com and click the link that says live shows.
1: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today, we are going to finish out our podcast on Amin Pasha, who was born Edward Schnitzer and spent his childhood and university years in Prussia before leaving for the Ottoman Empire to practice medicine and eventually work in a number of government positions. Where we left off last time, he had become the governor of Equatoria in what's now South Sudan. We only really have European perspectives on his time as governor, from that point of view, he handled his position with thoughtfulness and compassion while also trying to reform the province and carry out a range of scientific study at the same time. In the 1898 biography, Emin Pasha, His Life and Work, George Schweitzer wrote, quote, under Amin's auspices, the equatorial territory was guided into unexpected paths of order and prosperity. But then things took a really dramatic turn in the 1880s, leading Henry Morton Stanley, who was Famous for having done a similar journey to find Dr. David Livingston, Uh, led to Stanley mounting a relief expedition to go find him. So that's what we're going to talk about today.
1: Stanley's Amin Pasha relief expedition unfolded in the context of the scramble for Africa. He and other explorers had returned from expeditions into Africa in the mid to late 19th century and described it as a place of immense natural wealth, including lumber, ivory, rubber, gold, copper, and diamonds. In places, the land was also incredibly fertile, suitable for establishing expansive plantations.
0: These same explorers also described the African people as uncivilized and, in their words, savage. Parts of the continent, particularly Western and Central Africa, were also still reeling from the effects of the transatlantic slave trade, which we talked about a bit more in part one. The Industrial Revolution hadn't really affected a lot of the continent, and from a European perspective, that sort of industry was a hallmark of how sophisticated and intelligent a society was. So since that industry wasn't there, obviously that place was worse.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so even though the continent of Africa was home to an immensely diverse collection of peoples and nations speaking thousands of languages and full of unique and complex social systems with their own art and music and technology, to the European eye, the civilized world should save it from Africans and then use African labor to cheaply carry out what they thought would clearly be a superior plan for industry and agriculture.
0: As a result, in the 1870s and 1880s, multiple European nations began aggressively trying to colonize the African continent. This land grab led to increasing tensions among the various European powers involved, but at the same time, they didn't want to actually go to war with each other over it. But it eventually reached the point that the Berlin West Africa Conference was convened from November 15, 1884 to February 26th, 1885.
1: Assembled at the request of Portugal, the Berlin West Africa Conference brought Great Britain, France, Germany, Portugal, and King Leopold II of Belgium together to work out who should have which territory around the Congo River Basin. While the Berlin West Africa Conference didn't directly affect the rest of the continent, it did lay the groundwork for nations to apply the same basic ideas of partition and colonization to other parts of Africa as well. Meanwhile,
0: the peoples of Africa had no representation or voice in this process or any real input into the colonization that followed. While some colonial conquests did take place by force, others were carried out with very little physical conflict for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it was just obvious that the colonizing force had much greater numbers and superior firepower, so it seemed to make a lot more sense to just save everybody's lives and accept the terms. But sometimes African leaders thought that this would be sort of a temporary measure, one that might bring new developments and resources that would ultimately be beneficial for them.
1: By 1914, European powers controlled all of Africa, apart from Liberia and Abyssinia, also known as the Ethiopian Empire. Abyssinia maintained its independence while Liberia had been established by the American Colonization Society as a home for free black people and former slaves from the United States. Liberia declared independence on July 26, 1847. The
0: scramble for Africa fed into an uprising that directly affected Amin Pasha's work as governor of Equatoria. In the late 19th century, Sudan had been under Egyptian rule but in 1876, due to financial mismanagement and an overly aggressive modernization campaign, Egypt was in so much debt that it had to declare bankruptcy.
1: They should have just made Amin Pasha in charge of all that, and it would have been fine.
0: That, it does sound like he could have carried that (laughs) off.
1: Uh, Britain and France took control of Egypt's economy, and Britain eventually invaded and occupied the nation in 1882. With all of this going on, none of the nations involved paid much attention to what was happening in Sudan to the south.
0: Many of Sudan's local population were vastly dissatisfied with the colonial government. They were tired of being exploited by European powers, didn't feel particularly connected even to Egypt, which was their neighbor. One particular man Muhammad Ahmad ibn al-Sayyid Abdallah was a mystic and an ascetic who was gathering disciples as early as 1870. And after a series of religious visions, Muhammad Ahmad proclaimed himself to be the Mahdi on June 29th of 1881.
1: In Islam, the Mahdi is essentially a divinely guided redeemer who is sent to bring justice to the world, restore the purity of Islam, and rule humanity before Judgment Day. It's often translated as the guided one. As with any religion, different people and sects have very different interpretations uh, how to consider both the Mahdi and Judgment Day. Muhammad Ahmad's interpretation was relatively violent and apocalyptic. He started encouraging an armed overthrow of the colonial government and raised an army to that end, hoping to establish an Islamic nation.
0: Today, there are a lot of accounts, especially ones that are written in recent years, that frame this as calling for jihad, using the Arabic word for struggle. But English use of the word jihad to mean holy war is actually fairly new, with its first appearance in writing, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, in 1869, Although Islam as a religion uses the concept of jihad in the context of a lot of internal and external struggles that aren't violent at all, a lot of non-Muslims today interpret the word jihad only as meaning holy war. That is not at all how contemporaneous accounts described this. Like, I did not find the word jihad used anywhere in any of the primary sources that I read that were written at the time.
1: Instead, authorities in Egypt and Sudan describe this as an uprising or a revolt. And we're going to talk all about how this uprising played out after we first pause for a bit of a sponsor break.
0: Sudanese authorities didn't take this uprising, which became known as the Modest Uprising, particularly seriously. This was in spite of warnings from Amin Pasha, who at the time had the title of Bey. During this during his time in Equatoria, he had really paid scrupulous attention to all the various political and social and religious issues that were playing out in the area. He not only pointed out that conditions were ripe for this uprising to become something serious, but he also offered to go and negotiate himself.
1: Instead, Rauf Pasha, then Governor General of Sudan, dispatched a man named Abu Saud. Abu Saud knew Muhammad Ahmad, so the idea was that he could talk to him personally and convince him to stop his anti-government agitation and then come with him back to the capital. Instead, Abu Saud deployed an armed detail to bring in Muhammad Ahmad by force, at which point the modest force wiped out the detail and came away with all of their weapons. The modest force
0: continued to grow from there, with people joining it for a whole range of social and political and religious reasons. Because Egypt was still essentially part of the Ottoman Empire, Muslims were pretty well represented in the colonial government. I mean, the Ottoman Empire was an Islamic empire. But only the most affluent and best educated people actually had a voice in the government. So a lot of people felt really excluded. Some Muslims also wanted an exclusively Muslim state that was governed directly under Islamic
1: law. Slave traders joined the modest force as well. Under pressure from European allies, particularly Britain, colonial governments had tried to implement an immediate, across-the-board abolition of slavery. So slave traders hoped that an overthrow of the colonial government would allow the practice of slavery to resume.
0: In what eventually became known as the modest war or the modest revolution, this force defeated multiple well-armed egyptian units between eighteen eighty one and eighteen eighty three, including slaughtering a force of nearly eight thousand men under the command of general william Hicks. And in 1885, they lay siege to the Sudanese capital of Khartoum. Major General Charles George Gordon, Amin Pasha's former employer and the former governor of Equatoria, was actually killed in this siege against Muhammad Ahmad's orders.
1: After taking Khartoum, the modest force abandoned it and moved on to Omdurman. Both Khartoum and Omdurman were well to the north of Equatoria and Amin Pasha's capital at Lado. While the province had seen some violence, overall, these years had been more of a watchful wait. However, Britain's withdrawal
0: cleared the way for the modest force to continue to take over the rest of Sudan and into other provinces, including Equatoria. Britain's withdrawal also cut off Amin Pasha's lines of communications with the the whole rest of the world. One of the last communications that Amin received was a letter from Nubar Pasha, who was the prime minister of Egypt, acknowledging that the monarch was abandoning Sudan and would be unable to offer him any further assistance.
1: In this letter, Amin was given unlimited freedom of action and assurances that if he decided it would be best to retreat back to Egypt, efforts would be made to work with various tribes between his position and the border to assure his safe passage. And regardless, he was given total carte blanche to take care of himself and his garrisons. They
0: were basically like, we can't help you do whatever you need. And that was the end of that. So for a while, Amin stayed put. But eventually, the modest takeover started to put more and more pressure on the province of Equatoria. Amin, though, did not want to leave. Not only was this his home now, but he knew that leaving it behind was going to undo all that work that he had put into it during his years as governor, which we talked about in part one. Eventually, though, he really didn't feel like he had any other choice. The situation became just too dangerous. He evacuated south to Wadalai in Uganda, near Lake Albert.
1: Amin had visited Uganda a number of times and had tried to establish friendly relationships with local leaders, so he wasn't wholly unfamiliar with the land or its people. He quickly sent emissaries to the local tribal leaders that he knew, as well as writing letters to officials in Zanzibar and Egypt, even though he wasn't particularly hopeful that those missives would get through.
0: When he did try to write to people anywhere else. He tried to reassure the rest of the world that he was fine. In a letter dated January 20th, 1887, he said, quote, respecting my plans for the future, I can only repeat that I am fully determined to stay. And even assuming that no help comes and the province slowly goes to pieces, I shall remain steadfast to the end. It is perfectly clear to me with that with my motley crowd, a journey right across Uganda and over the lake is an impossibility He went on to say that they were building new boats and repairing their steamers, and so quote, there need be no anxiety
1: on our account. Basically, he wanted to keep everyone who had evacuated with him, which included a lot of the residents of the former Equatorian capital, together and safe. So he got to work doing a lot of the same things that he'd been doing in Equatoria, establishing crops, improving roads, and trying to see to the needs of the people he was still essentially governing. He also offered as much aid as he could to neighboring tribes, and the entire time continued on with his work as a naturalist and anthropologist.
0: This definitely was not easy. They were essentially starting over as refugees, and they only had what they had managed to carry out of Equatoria. At one point, they lost several of their huts and a lot of their provisions in a fire, Illnesses were common, including a smallpox epidemic, and the region was also home to a species of fly whose bites tended to cause fevers and ulcerations.
1: At some point, and the timeline is not exactly clear, Amin had married an Abyssinian woman who became ill in late February of 1887 and died on March 6th of that year. The two of them had a daughter, Farida, as well as a son who died around the same time as his mother. Outside of Uganda,
0: nobody had any idea that any of this was going on. Nobody in Europe or anywhere else in Africa had gotten any word from Amin Pasha at all since the fall of Khartoum.
1: That changed when Dr. Wilhelm Juncker, an explorer and scientist, made his way to the eastern coast of Africa. Juncker had been with Amin in Equatoria for quite some time and knew about the decision to retreat south he gave a much different read on Amin's attitude, describing Amin's last statement to him as, quote, we shall hold out until we obtain help or until we perish.
0: Sounds a lot more fatalistic than the letter that he wrote. Uh, and with this uh, statement from Dr. Younger, the world decided that Amin Pasha needed to be rescued. And that is what we are going to talk about after a sponsor break. that Amin Pasha was cut off from the rest of the world and needed to be rescued, multiple organizations started trying to organize and fund a relief expedition to either go get him or to bring him provisions and supplies. Eventually, explorer and journalist Henry Morton Stanley, who was already made famous by his expedition to find Dr. David Livingston, was tapped to do this. There is already an episode on this famous meeting between Stanley and Livingston, which is in our archive, and we're actually going to be re-airing it as our next Saturday classic.
1: The Amin Pasha relief expedition was funded by private support, the Egyptian government, and King Leopold II of Belgium. King Leopold's activities in Africa could, and probably at some point will, be an entire other episode of the show. But very briefly, uh, he became interested in the Congo region of Africa during Stanley's exploration there in the mid-1870s. And on February 5th, 1885, he established the Congo Free State as his personal possession under his private ownership, rather than a colony of Belgium. Leopold's
0: rule over the Congo Free State is now notorious for brutality, exploitation, and all manner of human rights abuses. Malnutrition and disease were rampant,
1: as well as the use of forced labor on rubber and palm oil plantations. So uh, Leopold definitely had ulterior motives here. And these motives were one reason why Stanley did not take a remotely direct route to where Amin Pasha was believed to be. Instead, he set out on a meandering route that would allow him to try to open up more of the Congo to Leopold's control along the way. There are also reports that he was on an ivory hunt, so
0: (laughs) it's definitely not just about going to get Amin Pasha. The expedition arrived at Banana Point on the Congo coast on March 18th, 1887. Three months later, he arrived in Yambua, departing from there with an advanced column made up of 383 Africans and six Europeans. He left a rear guard behind, which was made of 265 Africans and
1: five Europeans. For both the advance and the rear columns, this expedition went incredibly badly. Illness, including malaria, roundworm, tapeworm, and gastrointestinal issues were rampant. So was malnutrition, as well as an epidemic of burrowing fleas that led to ulcerations and amputations. There's some speculation that cattle brought with the advance guard into Uganda spread an epidemic of sleeping sickness there. By Stanley's own admission, the expedition caused the deaths of at least 1,000 people, mostly Africans employed as soldiers or porters, but also people that he described as, quote, belligerent natives. For the rear column, it was worse.
0: A lot, lot worse. Like, it's one of the possible inspirations for Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. That level of worse. Most of its officers died or were killed, and a lot of the African porters either starved to death or died from eating poisonous food. Stories of humanitarian horrors were rampant, They are also touched on in the past episode on Stanley and Livingston that'll be our next Saturday classic, so I don't really feel the need to repeat the worst of them here. It was awful.
1: In December 1887, the advance column finally made it to Lake Albert, almost eight months after having set off from Banana Point. Stanley was too sick to continue and sent an officer to look for Amin Pasha. They also eventually gathered up what was left of the rear guard.
0: While he was waiting, Stanley received a letter from Amin giving a more precise account of where he could be found. And so he sent a team to retrieve him on April 23rd, 1888. The team found Amin Pasha on April 27th and returned
1: to Stanley with him on the 29th. They drank a bunch of champagne to celebrate, but the Amin Pasha relief expedition was not at this point actually able to offer Amin Pasha any relief. In uh, Amin Pasha, His Life and Work, it was described this way. Quote, a collection of famine-stricken, tattered, worn, and exhausted men brought him 34 cases of ammunition, two bales of half-spoiled clothes, and a letter from the Khadiv. The route taken by this expedition was anything but that by which Amin could establish the communication so essential to him with the outer world. So yeah, Amin Pasha ended up aiding the
0: relief expedition that had come to aid him. But he didn't really want to be rescued. There had been some talk uh, in the planning process and, and all of that about whether this expedition was meant to resupply Amin Pasha or to take him out of Africa. But Stanley presented him with a few options. He could retreat with Stanley to the coast... He could continue to be governor, but as part of the Congo Free State. Or he could join up with the English East Africa Company and try to take over Uganda. Stanley did not tell Amin Pasha about the existence of the German East Africa Company, which he might, because he was ethnically German, uh, have found appealing, also didn't tell him about the fact that the German East Africa Company was also trying to mount its own Eman Pasha relief expedition.
1: So of the options offered to him, Amin didn't really want to do any of them. All of the options that Stanley had presented to him would require him to abandon the work that he had been doing for years and to at least some degree, the people that he had been living and working with all that time.
0: Yeah, like if he went to be... The, the governor of the Congo Free State. Like, he was probably not going to be relocating all of these people that he had with him there. And, of course, the people that Amin Pasha had been governing all this time did not really like any of these options either. At one point, his fighting force, objecting to the idea of having to leave their home, tried to mutiny. Then when he was returning to Wadalai on August 18th of 1888, he was captured and held prisoner by rebels It was only after being released that he finally relented and agreed to leave the area with Stanley. So he, the rest of Stanley's surviving straggling force, and about 1,500 others departed on April 10th of 1889. And they reached the Indian Ocean that
1: December. The expedition to relieve Amin Pasha was supposed to take 18 months, but it instead took a total of 32. And after all that, Stanley didn't get to return to Europe a hero, with Amin Pasha in tow. Amin had always been very nearsighted, and in Zanzibar, he stepped out of a window that he thought led onto a balcony during a celebratory dinner, and he cracked his skull. And though he did recover, he was too seriously hurt to be moved, so Stanley had to return to Europe alone. After he
0: recovered... I mean, stayed in Africa. He took a job under Kaiser Wilhelm II, working to advance German interests in Central Africa during the ongoing scramble for the continent. However, this work did not go nearly as well as his governorship of Equatoria had, While he had been out of the central continent, slave traders that he had worked so assiduously against had been hard at work on their own turning people against him. And then on July 1st, 1890, Britain and Germany signed an agreement excluding Lake Albert, which was where he was supposed to be working from German control.
1: He continued to travel and explore in the Congo region until the 1890s, continuing to send his findings and specimens back to Western museums. Other explorers and officials sent word back to Europe reporting on his whereabouts on December tenth, eighteen ninety one A doctor Stuhlmann reported that he was in poor health and had lost much of his eyesight once again, convinced that he needed relief, A German force was dispatched to fetch him. But when they got to his last known location, he was gone on october twenty
0: third eighteen ninety two Amin Pasha was assassinated by slave traders who slit his throat to again quote his obituary, quote, thus perished miserably in the wilds of Africa, a man who had devoted many years of his life to the cause of African civilization, whose scientific work had secured him a foremost place in the devoted band to whose labors we are indebted for our knowledge of the dark continent and whose unselfishness, amiability, and strong sense of duty are extolled by all who came into contact with him. I feel like that piece of obituary, in addition to summing up the fact that Amin Pasha seems to have been a generally good guy he was trying to do a good work also sums up racist attitudes about Africa.
1: Yeah. Amin Pasha's daughter, Farida, was sent to Nysa, where her guardians were Amin's sister and his colleague, George Schweitzer. In
0: 1890, Henry Morton Stanley published a book called In Darkest Africa or The Quest Rescue and Retreat of Amin, Governor of Equatoria, It is a very dramatic account of the relief expedition that solidified a lot of very racist ideas about the continent of Africa. Uh, Also, it solidified the idea of Henry Morton Stanley being great. Uh, It was a colossal bestseller. But that same year, the Aborigines Protection Society in London condemned the Amin Pasha relief expedition, accusing Stanley of committing atrocities against the the African population. Stanley himself also came under a lot of scrutiny as more word spread about the horrors of the expedition, particularly the rear columns' behavior.
1: To return briefly to Sudan... Although Muhammad Ahmad died of typhus in 1885, the Modest force remained in control of much of Sudan until the Battle of Omdurman on September 2nd, 1898. And that battle was a decisive victory for the British, killing more than 10,000 of the Modest force, which was only 50,000. And at that point, Britain once again established Sudan as an Anglo-Egyptian colony.
0: Amin Pasha published no books during his lifetime, although he did contribute to scientific journals and other publications. After his death, though, a number of his friends and colleagues published biographies of him that drew from and sometimes reprinted these letters and journals. A lot of these are available on the internet now. They're in the public domain. I kind of wish that they had become as widely read as Stanley's book, (laughs) Because, you know, I didn't read literally every single word of every journal that he wrote, but I found his descriptions of uh, life in Africa and the natural world in Africa to be written in a more um, sort of dispassionate and non non-jud- judgmental way. Right. Whereas a lot of the tone of Stanley's writing is more like, ooh, look how exotic and dangerous Africa is. I'm so great.
1: Well, I think you've just explained why they were not so widely read. <laughs> I know. It's very <laughs> Less sad. sensational and more accurate is often not what sells books. Um, as we noted earlier, we already have an episode in the archive on Stanley's rescue of Dr. Livingston. That is from back when Sarah and Dublina were hosts. And that is actually going to be our next Saturday Classic. So you get a week of sort of themed stuff. Uh, so if you hang on till Saturday, you'll get that. And you can expand your your background knowledge on this topic
0: doesn't mean Pasha I find him really fascinating and I do definitely wish that we had uh like the perspective more perspectives of local people because a lot of that was not written down by anybody so it's like we sort of have to put a level of trust that the people who were writing about him in these pretty positive terms were accurately assessing what was going on but from everything I can determine it does seem as though that he was liked and respected and people thought that he was doing a pretty good job. Uh, governing Equatoria while he was there. So,
1: do you got some listener mail?
0: Yes, I do. This is from Grace. It is about our recent episode on the H.L. Hunley, and it's called The Sinking of the H.L. Hunley, Admittedly Not Anything Actually to Do About That Sinking, which I find delightful as an email subject line. So Grace says, Hi, Tracy and Holly. I am another of your longtime listeners, first time writers. I was listening to your latest episode when you guys were talking about the blockade runners and the fantasy built up around them. I am from Halifax, Nova Scotia. Love for the previous host's episode on the explosion. And my grandmother was Acadian who grew up on the coast. I grew up hearing similar stories about rum runners. There is a cove near my grandmother's childhood home called Smuggler's Cove, it has a deep cave only accessible by land at low tide. Uh, it is a. It is in the Bay of Fundy. The tides are no joke. My favorite was about my grandmother's best friend. She was apparently beautiful as a small child, and her father, who was in charge of picking up the booze from the smugglers and bringing it inland to the cities, this is the point at which they were most likely to be caught, used to drive the cart filled with hidden rum with his pretty daughter right up front they were never stopped and searched probably because they looked so benign it sounds silly but there was a fair amount of discrimination at the time and for a while after against the french speaking minority so never they never stopped so never being stopped and searched was a real feat i know you guys get told to do an episode on the acadians all the time this is me throwing my hat in the ring but what might be more interesting is an episode on where they all went after being kicked out the spread of and how some came back Uh, And then uh, Grace offers another episode suggestion as well. Thank you so much, Grace. I love this comparison between blockade runners and rum runners. I had not thought of that before, but it makes total sense. And I also wanted to read this note because, yes, the expulsion of the Acadians is definitely on the list. Uh, I really cannot predict when it might make it to the top of the list because there is just a lot of cultural knowledge that uh, whichever of us Um, would be writing that episode would need to really absorb before we could do that all justice. So if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at history podcast at howstuffworks.com. We're on everywhere in social media. Mist in History is our name. So that's Facebook and Tumblr and Twitter and Pinterest and Instagram, all that. Our website is at mistinhistory.com where you can find show notes. You can find Uh, searchable archive, all of our episodes ever. So, come to MissedInHistory.com for that and a whole lot more. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Live on NFL Network, ESPN Two, and streaming on NFL Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL Plus. Visit NFL.com/schedule release to learn more. This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people you can fight discrimination and help write the next chapter of Lambda Legal history. To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit lambdalegal.org. That's lambdalegal.org. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping?